Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Now, in this episode, we're extremely lucky to be joined by Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch. Robert, thank you very much for coming on. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, um, our eagle-eyed viewers will notice that um, we're, we're talking via the miracle of satellite technology. You, you, you haven't come to the UK for this one. Um, <laughs> you're, you're actually banned from the UK, aren't you, Robert? Yes, that's right. It's been 10 years now. Uh, I was going to go to a memorial for Lee Rigby, who was murdered by a uh, jihadi mm. on the street in London. And then the jihadi went to a camera, uh, a guy who was filming nearby. And while he's holding his bloody cleaver, he started to explain why he had done it based on passages from the Quran. And I thought that was ironic because when the Home Office wrote me a letter saying that I was not allowed to come into Britain, they said that the reason why was because I taught that Islam has a doctrine of warfare against unbelievers, which is exactly <laughs> what this guy had where, said. Where did you get that idea, Robert? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, I know. That, well, that's so, I mean, I, I have a bit of a theory on this one. I, mean, I remember the, the killing of Lee Rigby well and, the, and, and, and watching it um, with, yeah, with the guys. I mean, they were, they were perfectly up front. They were perfectly proud of what they had done. But, but I, I have a theory on this. I, I don't think that governments ban people who say things that are untrue. And I don't think governments ban people who say things that are helpful to them. I think in order to get banned, you need to be saying something which is a combination of both true and unhelpful to the government's agenda. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I remember when Theresa May was prime minister and she boasted in a speech that she had kicked Abu Hamza and Abu Qatada out of Britain and had banned me and Pamela Geller from coming in. And she was trying to set up, in other words, the equivalence, the idea that I am just like Abu Hamza on the other side. Now, Abu Hamza, for those who may not know, is now in prison for trying to start a jihad training camp in Oregon. And he was an open jihad terrorist when he was the imam at the Finsbury Park Mosque in London. Now, me, I have never called for, advocated, or approved any violence or any illegal activity. And so what she was trying to do was set up the idea that there was some kind of a right-wing extremist threat that was equivalent to the jihad threat. And this would in turn appease the Muslim population of Britain that was angry because she was yeah. prosecuting jihadis such as Abu Hamza. But the whole thing is based on a lie because I'm not actually a terrorist leader. Well, and, and, and I don't know if you still keep up with the UK news, but the appeasement bit, that didn't work. That we 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 are, we are we are still having some some issues there, which which I'm sure you're aware of. So I mean, um, yeah. for, for for anyone who doesn't know you, t tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do at Jihad Watch. Yeah, Jihad Watch is uh, online at jihadwatch.org. It's been there for 20 years now, and mm -hmm. we uh, track jihad activity. That's basically it. And so it's even more ironic that Theresa May was claiming to be against the jihad activity that was being perpetrated by Abu Hamza and Abu Qatada, and we who just track it and give information about it, she was lumping together with them. Uh, it's the site, it's the only site I know online or anywhere else for that matter on that, that covers jihad news worldwide and gives an understanding of what the motivating ideology is of the jihad terrorists. And also, I uh, write books. I've written 20, published 27 books. The 28th is done and uh, will be out later this year. 
and they are mostly, but not all, about various aspects of jihad and the motivating ideology behind jihad. So I've written a biography of Muhammad, the truth about Muhammad, an edition of the Quran with commentary, the critical Quran, uh, oh. a book called The History of Jihad, and so on. So let, let's sidetrack quickly on that, because many years ago, I, I, I went through the exercise of sitting down and reading the Bible. And then after that, I decided, okay, now I'm going to go do the Quran. And I started and I really pushed myself. But it, it's, I mean, it's a hell of a difficult read. I mean, it was so spasmodic. I mean, and I, I noticed things like the same story, extracts of the Bible seem to just crop up over and over. I mean, so, 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 so fill me in. For somebody who couldn't actually finish the book, why was I having such a hard time? Well, the Quran, in, other, in the first place, is the most decontextualized book in the history of the world. It's kind of ironic because every time you quote an uncomfortable passage, like kill them wherever you find them or something like that, mm. then Islamic apologists will say, oh, you're taking it out of context. But they're just relying on people not knowing that the Quran doesn't really have very much context. It tells all kinds of stories with leaving important parts out, assuming that the hearers know the story. It is full of, as you noted, Bible stories adapted and, and altered in various ways and repeated over and over. The story of Pharaoh and Moses and the Exodus is told eight or nine times in the Quran with minor variation. And there are many other stories that are repeated, but there is no chronological order. There's no thematic order. There's really no order to it at all. It's just a jumble of essentially hectoring sermons telling people that they better believe in Muhammad as a prophet and Allah as the only God, or they will suffer in hellfire and suffer in this world as well. And that part is where it becomes problematic for non-Muslims, because the Quran is the only religious system in the world that teaches warfare against unbelievers as a primary obligation of the believer. So, okay, so that, that brings me into one of the things that I did want to talk about, which is um, obviously, Brokenomics is a channel where we look at economic systems quite a lot, but we also look at broken systems. And actually, the, the thing that I got from, from reading um, The Life of Muhammad is actually, in the early stages, it was quite a brilliant business model. It was, you know, you sign up with us, um, you take on our, our branding, um, and you are now protected. I mean, I'll, I'll let you explain it much better than I can, but you are now effectively protected within this group. You can then go out and do what, as you wish with those who are not in the group and take whatever you can from them. And I think it was something like you pass up 30% to the big guy. So, you know, obviously that, that margin has been eroded to, you know, the big guy only gets 10% now. But, but can you tell us about the, orig the original model of this, how it worked and why it was so successful as a, as a system? Yeah, if I recall correctly, in chapter 8, verse 41 of the Quran, it says 20% to the oh, big 20%. guy. Okay. Uh, Oil war that you take, that is, when you go to war against the unbelievers, then you have to turn over to Muhammad or to the Muslim leaders 20% of what you take. Uh, and so, yes, you're right. It was a brilliant business model. It still is, actually. Uh, the idea is that it's a win-win situation that is set up in the Quran and in Islamic tradition, that you go to war against the unbelievers. And this is a blessed act. It's like a sacramental act in Christianity. It is something that Allah wants you to do and will reward you for doing. 
you go to war against the unbelievers, and if you defeat them, you can take their property, you can take their women, and they're yours, except for the 20% for the big guy. And that's it. If you lose, however, and you're killed, then you go to paradise where there are the 72 virgins awaiting you. And so either way, you win. And by this this model, the, the these teachings, the Muslims were able to create a fighting force that overwhelmed a, a, a tremendous expansive territory very quickly after the death of Muhammad. Within a hundred years of the death of Muhammad, at least as it's traditionally reckoned, the Muslims had an empire stretching from Spain to India. And even today, this is a tremendous enticement to people. There was a kid, 14 years old, and he had a bomb strapped on, and he was going to go and kill Israelis coming out of Gaza a few years back. Mm. And he was discovered at a checkpoint, and they, had a, they have a robot that goes and uh, takes the bomb off you so that nobody gets blown up in the process. And so the kid is standing there, stripped to his shorts so they can get at the bomb, and the robot is coming, and he calls out to the Israeli soldiers and says, how am I going to get to paradise now and get my virgin? And so we think the story's ridiculous, but there are all too many people who take it quite seriously to this day. So you say that the, the, the text commands um, war against the unbelievers and so on. Can you back that up with any sort of quotes or anything? Is Because is, is, that sounds like the sort of thing a lot of people will say, but I think what's great about your work is you can, you can actually cement this by saying, no, actually, it says it, you know, here. Yeah, here's some quotes. Uh, chapter 2, verse 191, I'll repeat it again in chapter 4, verse 89, is kill them wherever you find them. And then in chapter 9, verse 5, it says, uh, kill the infidels or the mush no, i'm not sorry i'm sorry not the infidels the mushrikun that is those who associate partners with allah or polytheists kill them wherever you find them now it's important to note at this juncture that everybody is a polytheist except the muslims even christians and jews who say they're monotheists are considered polytheists in islam because of chapter 9 verse 30 which says that the Jews say that Ezra is the son of Allah, which no Jews have ever said, but that's what the Quran claims. And the Christians say Jesus is the son of Allah. Both of them are under Allah's curse. They're just repeating what they've been told and so on. Allah has no son. It is only him alone. And so to say that is shirk, associating partners with Allah, which is the worst sin in Islam. And that makes you a polytheist, which means you have to be killed. But another possibility is extended to you in chapter 9, verse 29, which says that you should fight the unbelievers, even if they are of the people of the book, which is primarily Jews and Christians, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. The jizya is a tax that is levied upon the non-Muslims. The Muslims don't have to pay it for the privilege of essentially being able to live and not be killed for being a non-Muslim. So you have the idea no, that you pay the tax, you submit to various humiliating discriminatory regulations that make sure that you feel yourself subdued, as the verse also says, and then you can live. So it's, it's being killed or being subjugated or converted to Islam. Those are the three choices. 
So the, that's the, the, the primary basis. There are also many other passages. For example, when you meet the unbelievers, strike the necks, that is, behead them. That's chapter 47, verse 4. Mm. Chapter 8, verse 39 says, fight them until there is no more fitna. Fitna is disturbance or persecution. And so that would give the impression, as many Muslims say today, that jihad is only defensive, that you only fight if you're being persecuted. But that's not the end of the verse. It says, fight them until there is no more fitna, and religion is all for Allah. And so, Dan, if your religion is not all for Allah, even if you're just minding your own business and mm. not bothering anyone, there are some Muslims, based on that Quran passage, chapter 8, verse 39, who will think they have an obligation to fight you. There are many other passages in the Quran that tell the Muslims that they should fight the unbelievers. And it's clear because of that business about giving the 20% and so on to the big guy that it's not fighting in terms of going and arguing with them or mm. trying to convince them of the truth of Islam. It's fighting in terms of real warfare because otherwise there's no spoils of war. If you win an argument or you pray for somebody, there are no spoils. So that's not the fighting that is meant. It's clearly hot warfare that is meant. Then there are many Islamic traditions also. For example, Sahih Muslim number 2922 is a tradition in which Muhammad is depicted as saying that you, when you meet the unbelievers, you invite them to accept Islam. If they refuse, you invite them to pay the jizya, that tax again. Yeah. And if they refuse that, then it says seek Allah's help and fight them. And so there is there's some so, of the basic. So how, how uh, much is, how much is the jizya? Is that specified as an amount? It's not specified, and it has been quite uh, a matter of contention right. over the century, uh, because there are Muslims today who claim, Islamic apologists claim, oh, it was a, a, a trivial amount, and actually right. the tax, the zakat that the Muslims had to pay was more. Now, this is false on the face of it, because if that were true, human nature being what it is, people don't like to pay taxes. <laughs> and so if the tax that the non-Muslims paid was less than yes. the tax than the Muslims paid, then you would have seen converting to Christianity. But you don't see that throughout history. So, so Robert, Actually, are, you, are, you, are you telling me that originally um, the Muslims were a group of Christians and Jews who just wanted tax breaks? <laughs> see, this is the deal. Actually, that's absolutely the case. You do right. see in Islamic history Sometimes there were uh, Muslim leaders who actually prohibited conversion to Islam because they knew that conversion to Islam would destroy the tax base. Ah, and so that the it was the the taxes of the Christians and Jews that powered the great Islamic caliphates of the past. Okay, so I, I did want to move on to. You know, Islam for the ages to bring it up to the modern age. But I just, I just want to pick on something that you said before. You were talking about you went through this whole list of quotes where it's very clear the Quran is commanding um, violence against non-believers and so on. Um, are we to believe that that there is anything in 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 the, in the Muslim faith that says you need to take all of this stuff literally? I mean, are, are Muslims known for being a bit laissez-faire with interpretations, or are they possibly you know a, a little bit strict on this stuff? Unfortunately, it's just the opposite. You know, you often find Islamic apologists quoting the Old Testament and all those passages about slavery and warfare mm. and all sorts of things 
in the Old Testament that are shocking to people in this age. But they don't tell you, and they might not even know, that those passages are not understood as having a literal application or as being even in force today by the vast majority of the overwhelming majority of Jews and Christians. By contrast, in Islam, literalistic interpretation of the Quran is the broad mainstream. And it is mm. the, the Muslims who say, well, this is just symbolic of some kind of spiritual warfare or something like that, who are the small minority. Literalism is, is taken for granted virtually everywhere in the Islamic world today. Okay, and there's, there's another concept which I've encountered, which I'm tr having trouble getting my head around, which is you quoted the passages that are obviously quite uh, bellicose. But there were also passages in there which are, um, you know, very peaceful, commands to be peaceful, all that kind of stuff. And I've heard this explained as something like, you know, your sink has a hot and a cold tap and you can have both of them at once and that's not a contradiction and you must take all of it literally true. I, I don't quite get my head around that distinction. Yeah, that's actually not a bad analogy. This is the situation. Uh, there are three stages of teaching in the Quran on jihad, according to the early Islamic scholars, actually according to Islamic scholars throughout the ages. But Muhammad's first biographer, Ibn Ishaq, is the first to explain this, that in the Quran you have three kinds of teaching on jihad. One is coexistence. Chapter 109 of the Quran says, say to the unbelievers, you have your religion and we have ours. And basically the idea is, let's just leave each other alone. Uh, mm. Then you have defensive warfare, which is uh, obviously responding if you're attacked. And then you have offensive warfare, as I explained earlier, which is to fight anyone whose religion is not all for Allah. And Ibn Ishaq says, and this has become mainstream Islamic theology, that the tolerance is the first stage. That when early in Muhammad's career in Mecca, when the Muslims were weak, and were a small minority, and they were facing a very powerful foe that had all the army behind it, then they preached tolerance. But it was not preaching tolerance for the unbelievers. It was asking for tolerance from the unbelievers. When Muhammad moved to Medina later in the Hijra and began to preach defensive jihad and then offensive jihad, then the situation changes. Those, take those teachings take precedence over the earlier teachings of tolerance, with offensive jihad being the final and most important stage. This is encapsulated in the idea of abrogation. In chapter 2, verse 106 of the Quran, it says uh, to, that when Allah causes a passage to be forgotten or rejects it, then he will give you one that's just as good or better. And so it's a very basic idea in Islamic theology that if there are contradictions in the Quran, then the later passage supersedes the earlier. That is, the one that is considered in uh, Islamic theology and Islamic history to have been revealed later in Muhammad's career. It supersedes what came earlier. So right. that's all very well, except passages for warfare come later than the passages for tolerance. And that creates a problem for all of history. Now, they do, in a certain sense, work like the hot and cold faucets, because whenever Muslims are in a situation like that of the Muslims of Mecca, where they were a small minority that had no power, then they teach tolerance, just like Muhammad did in mm. Mecca. 
And so it's not that the passages that are earlier are canceled and forgotten and have no applicability. They're all eternally true, but they're situational. So that when you're in the situation like right. Muhammad was, being a small minority, you teach tolerance. When you get more strength, you teach warfare. And this is what we're seeing in the West right now, as a matter of well, fact. Well, that's exactly the what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, that 10, 20 years ago, you had all the Muslim spokesmen preaching tolerance and saying Islam is a religion of peace. Now you have these louts like Muhammad Hijab and Ali Dawa and Daniel Hakikaju saying, no, Islam teaches warfare, and we are proud of that. And that is the, the movement from the first stage to the second because yeah. they believe that they have more power now and thus are able to move to the next stage. So, I mean, if, if, I'm under, if I'm remembering the story correctly, he spent, whatever it was, 10, 15 years in Mecca at the beginning teaching essentially peace. And the religion didn't really go anywhere. He had a handful of followers. And then he moved to Medina, was it? And then he, started, then he flipped the business model to the one we talked about before. And then it just grew like a flame. I mean, the, the, I mean actually, the story is quite amazing. I'd love to see a film um, of, of this story put together. I, I'd imagine that that's probably not going to take place. Um, you know, the, the cover art might be a bit problematic given, given their stance on this, but, um, but it, I mean, it is genuinely a, a, a remarkable story if, if we could, you know, just tell it straight. Um, so then, of course, yeah. okay, so we, we got the early days of it, um, but an, another criticism that I've often heard is that unlike, say, Catholicism, there, isn't, there hasn't been left intact a command structure. There's no Pope of um, Islam. And as a result, you can't move with the times. And you, you obviously, you get to the point today where you get the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury who are telling us that we need to do more on environmentalism and, and trans in kids and, and all of those things. They, they have fully, embra fully embraced all of those modern issues. But, um, but Islam hasn't moved with that. Um, so, I mean... <sighs> In a way, I've got at least a little bit of sympathy for your sort of Andrew Tate characters who say that, look, what a complete mess the current, current West is, and that Islam at least offers some sort of sense and sobriety to, to the madness that's going on. I've got, to, I've, got a, I've got a twinge of sympathy for that argument. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, this is one of the great failings of Christianity in our age, that mm. it's chasing after every trend that is uh, coming out of the secular culture instead of offering a viable alternative. And so all kinds of young people or uh, people of every age, like Tate and others, are see saying that they are disgusted with the materialism, with the, the hedonism, with the immorality, with the, the, mm. the, the rot that we see all around us in the secular culture, and the only alternative that's being presented is Islam. But this is a failing of the religious leaders in the West, and I think an, mm. a failure to understand what the real challenges of our age are. The, uh, the challenges of our age are precisely the things that they are endorsing instead of standing up against, and this is why they're hemorrhaging members. Uh, but the fact is that the, a lot of these people like Tate, maybe not Tate himself, but a lot of the people who are rushing to embrace Islam and praising Islam and finding Islam to be wonderful today, they're going to have a tremendous case of buyer's remorse 
when they get in deeply into it and they realize that it is so inveterately misogynistic, brutal, violent. Uh, as a matter of fact, terror is the fundamental key to Islam. It's not just a, uh, a manifestation by some people over here. Islam is based on terror. It's based on fear. It's based on making you too scared to disobey because it's got all these rules. And if you don't follow them, then you'll be beheaded or stoned to death or thrown off the top of a building or what have you. And mm. if you don't want to live in terror, then Islam is not for you. But that is the core of the whole thing. And so a lot of people are going to be in for a rude awakening. And when they see also that, that it forbids music, it forbids all manner of things that are basic to human life, then mm. uh, they're going to wish that they hadn't jumped before they looked. Uh, but that's the nature of the appeal that Islam has these days, that it's presenting itself, the, the, the Dawah people are presenting themselves very skillfully as a as yeah. an alternative to the rotten secular culture, but not telling them the whole story. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.